right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the Old Testament prophet of Amos. So Amos chapter number 5, as you're making your way there, I want to just encourage you to be a part of the service tonight if you're not accustomed to coming. We are, especially uh, if you're a member here, we're going to resume our series through 1 Timothy tonight, chapter 3. The message is going to involve basically laying out the biblical requirements uh, for those that hold the office of a pastor or deacons within the church. And we are also beginning... Uh, our kind of annual selection process of deacons for the year. And so we'll send forms, nomination forms home tonight and we'll ask you to take those over the next two weeks and pray over them before you submit them. Uh, And so uh, just keep that in mind as you're praying this afternoon, hopefully for the service tonight and then as we come together tonight uh, so that we know the Lord's will and we follow that in, in our nominating process. And so uh, kind of a big event in the church's life every so often. And so we want to uh, just let you know that that's going to begin this evening. And so we also have other things coming up and we'll elaborate more on that in the, in the, at the end of the service today. But I do want to just say along the lines while you're finding the book of Amos there um, that next Sunday is Vision Sunday. I'll be preaching in the morning hour. Uh, really the, the gist of the vision for the year and then on Sunday night uh, we'll give a lot of practical things that we're going to try to pray the ask the Lord to help us to see accomplished in the coming year uh, or in the year that we're in uh, and so it, we're just seeking the Lord's will and trying to reestablish some form of normalcy as we move through this year uh, trying to be wise and to keep everyone safe and protected but yet uh, kind of get things moving again in the right direction and so we're praying the Lord will Uh, help us to see his hand and working in the lives of his people through the midst of this coming year or or in the year in which we're in. And Amos chapter number five, I think in your notes there, it's got you beginning in verse 14 and that's originally the way that I laid this out. But I do want to take a little bit of extra time this morning to just back up and begin in verse number one. I want to just establish the full context here. Verse 14 establishes the gist of the context. I want to go back and just lay out uh, and so as you read along, just imagine the, the picture here. Uh, and just by background, Rehoboam the, se- or is the second or Jeroboam the second is on the throne. And Jeroboam the second, and I'll say a lot more about him in a moment, but uh, he is a successful but wicked king in Israel. Um, and so when you look at these Old Testament prophets, if you look at the opening words, the opening verse or two of the uh, of the book generally tells you what kings were in power during the time of the year in which the years in which they prophesied, and that really helps to understand the the, the predicament or the picture or uh, and the importance of what's being stated. Uh, and so Amos is prophesying here in Israel, the northern ten tribes uh, during the divided kingdom, uh, to and Jeroboam the second is on the throne of Israel. Jehovah's heart is broken. This is a lamentation. Uh, Much like the book of Lamentations is Jeremiah, the prophet, weeping over the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. God here is weeping over his broken heart as to uh, the the vanity of the sacrifices of his people. Uh, And so with that in mind, he says this, beginning in verse 1, Hear ye this word which I take up against you, Even a lamentation, O house of Israel. The virgin of Israel is fallen. She shall no more rise. She is forsaken upon her land. There is none to raise her up. For thus saith the Lord God, the city that went out by a thousand shall leave an hundred. 
and that which went forth by an hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel. For thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. But seek not Bethel, nor enter into Gilgal, and pass not to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to naught. Seek the Lord, and ye shall live, lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph and devour it, and, be, and there be none to quench it in Bethel. Ye who turn judgment into wormwood, and leave off righteousness in the earth, seek him that maketh the seven stars in Orion, and turneth the shadow of death into the morning, and maketh the day dark with night, that calleth for the waters of the sea, and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name, that strengthened the spoil against the strong, so that the spoiled shall come against the fortress. They hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. For as much, therefore, as your treading is upon the poor, and ye take from him the burdens of wheat, ye have built houses of hewn stone, but ye shall not dwell in them. Ye have planted pleasant vineyards, but ye shall not drink the wine of them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. They afflict the just, and they take a bribe, and they turn aside the poor in the gate from their right. Therefore the prudent shall keep silence in that time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that ye may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you, as ye have spoken. Hate the evil and love the good, and establish judgment in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. Therefore the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, saith thus, Wailing shall be in all streets, and they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas, and they shall call the husbandmen to mourning, and such as are skillful of lamentation to wailing. And in all vineyards shall be wailing, for I will pass through thee, saith the Lord. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. As if a man did flee from a lion, and a bear met him. Or went into the house, and leaned his hand upon the wall, and a serpent bit him. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light? Even very dark, and no brightness in it. I hate, I despise your feast days, and I will not smell your solemn assemblies. Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them, neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials. But let judgment run down as waters, and righteousness as a mighty stream. Have ye offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? But ye have borne the tabernacle of your Moloch and Chion, your images, the star of your God, which ye made unto yourselves. Therefore will I cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus, saith the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. I want to speak this morning to you on the thought, an acceptable sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together once again. Lord, thank you for your word and its power. Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence and working in our hearts. 
Lord, may you convince us of the truth of, your, of the scripture. May you convict us in our sin. May you draw us to our Savior. Lord Jesus, thank you that you promised to meet with us when we gather in your name. Lord, we need you in this hour. We need you in our lives on a daily basis, every moment. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to love you. I pray that you would help us, in, help us in our lives, each one individually, to offer a sacrifice that is acceptable. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> now, when we look here at Israel, Israel, this is a time of, uh, of power. This is a time of prosperity. Uh, and it, it lays out and establishes in 2 Kings uh, the ascent of Jeroboam to the throne. And so as he ascends the throne and he rises to power, he is a, a, an evil king as all of Israel's kings were, meaning that he is evil that he leads the people away from God. He leads them into idolatry. Now they have not forsaken a semblance of worship to the true God. They are still offering sacrifices. They are still going through the motions of the Mosaic law. They are honoring the feast days. They are fulfilling everything that God has stated that he wants done. But they're also adding to it the worship of other gods. And in this particular case, he references uh, specific gods. And he lays out in, uh, in the early part here in verse, verse 8, Seek ye him that maketh the seven stars in Orion. So he's laying out. Now we have the constellation Orion. That's the reference there. And you can look up at the sky and the three stars that line up and form the belt of Orion. It's the same thing that he's referencing here. Uh, and so he's addressing specifically the nature of their worship of their false deities. Uh, and so again, it's a blending of pagan religion and a blending of the, of the religion of Israel. Uh, and so when you come and you look and then you get to the latter part of the book of the chapter and he says here, for ye have offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel, uh, but ye have borne the tabernacle of your Moloch and Shion. Now Moloch uh, is specifically a pocket god. It is, uh, it is, they've gone from having their high places, which are still there, and they still worship false deities in those high places that Solomon ushered in. Uh, and they, uh, they have now made themselves little gods that they can take with them wherever they go so that they can set up and pray to these gods wherever they are. And they would just simply carry them around in a pocket uh, or in a bag, and uh, they had their god with them wherever they went. Then that also mentions Chian. Chian is Saturn. It is the god of Saturn. It is the god of worshiping the stars and, uh, and keeping those things. And he referenced that early and then he comes back to it here. Uh, and that's what you see borne out even in uh, the wording of the verse. But the tabernacle of your Moloch and Chian, your images, the star of your god. Uh, and so that being Saturn. And so they're worshiping these pagan gods and they are still practicing all of the, the feasts of, uh, that, are, that are commanded them of God uh, in the law of Moses. And so God has come to a point where he is brokenhearted and he is going to bring judgment. Now they embrace the idea of judgment and he alludes to that in the text this morning uh, whenever he talks about uh, the day of the Lord. Uh, and how they're kind of looking to the day of the Lord. And, and he warns them, he says in verse 19, as if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him. 
or went and leaned his hand upon the pillar of his house and a serpent bit him. What he's saying here is this. He's saying, listen, you think that you want judgment because in their mind at a time of great power and prosperity in Israel, they thought that God's judgment meant, which is what the day of the Lord is, is that the God's judgment meant that God is going to come and judge their enemies. But in reality, God is brokenhearted and is going to judge his people. And so what they think they want is God judge our enemies. And what he's saying is judgment's going to come and you're going to think that you see a lion and you're going to turn to flee from the lion and you're going to run into a bear and be devoured. Or you think you're going to retreat into the safety and the solitude of the fortress of your home and you're going to take rest and lean against the pillar and a serpent will bite you. I remember when I was just a boy, uh, we lived out outside of town and and the area where our house was, was our house was the first one that was built out there. It was just a small little house out in the country. And uh, my mom, we never went out the front door. We always went through the garage. And uh, for some reason, that particular day, it was a fall morning. My mom said, go out the front door and get in the car. Uh, and so we ran out and we ran in and we ran out and we ran in and we ran out. Uh, and when she came out and she turned around to lock the door, there's a big copperhead right in the corner ready to strike. And God protected us. It didn't bite us. And she went and got one of the one of the builders that was just a little ways away, and he came and killed it. And uh, and it's just you're in the safety of what you think is is safe, and danger lurks there. We were blind to. It. I never saw it. I don't. I probably walked by it four or five times. I never saw it. I was oblivious to uh, surroundings and the reality of the danger that was uh, that was lurking. And that's Israel's condition here. And so Jeroboam, at the height of his power. A powerful king, a regionally powerful king, a prosperous king, has still a wicked king that's led them to continue to worship these false gods and idols while they still had the pretense of worshiping God. And God comes to the place where he finally says, listen, the, the burnt offerings that are rising up should be a sweet smelling savor to me. It's like, you know, driving up to the house after a long, hard day and the windows are open and the smell of supper comes pouring out through the windows and just gets your attention and makes your mouth start watering. That's what our sacrifices to God should be. But when you pull up and supper's cooking, but it's burning, it doesn't smell so great. And so uh, essentially God's saying that what should be a sweet smelling savor to me is unacceptable. So what's the problem? Now, I, the title this morning is An Acceptable Sacrifice, but we have to understand what makes a sacrifice unacceptable before we can appreciate what makes it acceptable. And so when we look in the text this morning, really is dealing with that unacceptable sacrifice. Now, they're doing all of the right things. Let me ask you something this morning. I wonder how many of us are doing all the right things. I mean, we're here, right? That's the right thing. If you read your Bible this week, that's the right thing. If you prayed throughout the week this week, that's the right thing. If you shared your faith with someone this week, that's the right thing. If you had compassion and concern for your brothers and sisters in Christ, that's the right thing. If you had compassion and concern for the lost this week, that's the right thing. Was that right thing acceptable to God? The message here this morning that God has to Israel is you're doing all the right things, but it's not acceptable to me. And, you know, we look at that and we say, well, that doesn't have anything to do with us. Oh, but it has everything to do with us. Because principally, it's exactly the same thing. 
we do without realizing what they were doing without realizing. And if we look and we understand what he's talking about here, his problem is not with what they're doing. It is the spirit and the love with which they are presenting it and which they're giving it. And they cannot understand how they're going to come under such dire judgment. They're a military power. They have great influence in the region. They are thriving financially. Yet in 50 years time, they would be taken away, defeated into captivity. In their mind, there's no way, Amos, that this can happen. But when God wants something to happen, it happens. When God decides that it's time to get our attention, he gets our attention. And so he is brokenhearted. And God's spirit here is not a spirit of, uh, of anything other really than a broken heart for his people. Now sometimes God is angry and there's wrath. And, uh, and, but right now he's brokenhearted and he's crying out to them and pleading with them to seek right that he might show uh, mercy uh, and there's no doubt about the fact that the, that the system of worship that they have to God is the system that God instituted. Yet God is rejecting their sacrifice. So what makes the difference? The sacrifices of God's people are, and God intends for them to be a precious thing to him. In Psalm 51, there's no greater illustration, really, uh, than David's repentance after his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah and his blame shifting of that sin to everyone else before he finally accepts uh, responsibility for it. And he says in chapter in Psalm 51 and verse 17 that the sacrifices of God, now remember this is still in the Old Testament age, he is still under the sacrificial system. He still has to make a, an atonement sacrifice every year. He still has to go and make sacrificial restitution for things that separate him from God and do these things at this point. But he says in that economy that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Thou wilt not despise, O God. So what's the message? The message is not that God has changed his mind on behalf of David for what a sacrifice is. David is laying out, this is what is required that a sacrifice be accepted. What makes it acceptable? So what is it about that? Well, there are four things just by way of introduction this morning that I think that we see that a, a, an acceptable sacrifice requires. And uh, this isn't going to be in the main points of your notes yet. This is still just laying the groundwork for the message. But number one, I would say this morning that a real sacrifice requires love. And what we see and what we're going to see borne out when we get into the main part of the message is that a genuine sacrifice requires love. A, a, a real sacrifice uh, is, is something that is given from a heart of love. We would see also that a real sacrifice has cost. It, it, if it doesn't cost, it's not a sacrifice. You know, if I were to come out the, and, and go and I, uh, you know, here's Don over here and uh, Don's hungry. The first service it was Brother Billy. They're sitting about the same spot. And, and Don's hungry and Don doesn't have any money and I've got $100 in my pocket and all of my bills are paid and uh, I don't have anything due. I don't have anything that I need. I've, I'm, I've just eaten. I'm full and I've got $100 and Don's hungry and I give him $10 so he can go buy himself a hamburger. That's not a sacrifice. But if I've got bills stacked up and I've got, I haven't eaten in two days and I've got 
uh, $11 to my name and Don's hungry and I give him that $10 and that becomes quite a sacrifice. See, sometimes we think that we do something that's easy for us to do and because we did it for God, it was a sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice if it doesn't cost us. If there's no pain in giving it, it's a sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice. I have to, with cost, give a sacrifice. I love the Old Testament story when, uh, when David repents of his sin of census, committing this, giving the census to the people, and uh, God sends the plague. And uh, when the plague is stayed, God tells David, go and offer a sacrifice, and I'll stop the plague. And he goes, and the man who owns the property where the sacrifice is to be offered says, this is a sacrifice for God and God's people. You can just have it, king. And David said, no, I have to offer this sacrifice. And I appreciate your gesture, but I'm not going to give an, a sacrifice to God that doesn't cost me anything. Genuine sacrifice comes with cost, and, uh, and I have to be willing to offer that cost. Sacrifice gives honor. Sacrifice gives honor to the one that is being sacrificed to. It is to bestow honor upon, and it does in turn bring honor upon the one who makes the sacrifice. Sacrifice, a sacrifice must be pure all throughout the Old Testament, and even uh, when sacrifices are given still early in the New Testament, what you, before the church is established, what you see in Jesus on the cross and resurrects is that there's a great requirement in the purity of the animal that is sacrificed. They could not offer a, a marred animal, an impure animal. In other words, they had to give their very best. For me to give less than my best to God at every turn is not being honoring of God nor sacrificing for him. Here the people are following the letter of the law. Everything on the appearance and the surface is as it should be as far as their worship of Jehovah, but God still is not accepting the sacrifice. And the people offered the sacrifices, but the love of the God of the Amorites, they could not break themselves from. Their love of being like the world around them, they could not tear themselves from. And God says to them, I cannot accept your sacrifice. In Amos chapter 5 and verse 21 and 22, I hate, I despise your feast days. And I will not smell in your solemn assemblies, though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them, neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. So what's he trying to get across here? He's saying, listen, I cannot accept a corrupt sacrifice. This isn't the only place that God references his displeasure with their sacrifice. In Isaiah chapter number 1, and beginning in verse number 11, he says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? And remember, these are sacrifices that God commanded. What is the purpose in the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of the fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations or empty, hollow, meaningless oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and the Sabbath, the calling of the assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hateth. 
They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. They break my heart. They're exhausting me, God says. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you. Make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And what God is saying here, you're, you're going through the motions of the sacrifice. Let's reason. Learn to do it right. Learn to do it well. Learn to give a sacrifice that's acceptable to me. Listen, you, you can't give an honorable sacrifice when you're in rebellion to the commands of God or to authority that God's placed in your life or to the, the, the will of God for your life. It's not possible. It's not acceptable to God. God is sick of disingenuous worship and service. He didn't stop there. He mentions it also when he's speaking of the seven churches in Revelation in chapter 3 and verses 15 and 16 when he says, I know thy works that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou were cold nor hot. I wish you would get in or get out. Uh, that I, uh, but so then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. In other words, I will, uh, I'm sickened by the sacrifices that you offer. Now, I'm not standing up here this morning saying, hey church, God's sick of you. I, I'm, I'm proclaiming this morning that in the beginning of a new year as we evaluate our lives, that we're evaluating whether or not the sacrifices that we make to God are acceptable to Him or not. And so what I'm seeking to do this morning is simply to contrast not the procedures of a sacrifice, because that's not in question here. There's nothing wrong procedurally with their sacrifice. The, God is not condemning their sacrifice. Now I realize we're talking about Israel and Judah separated. There, there are some compromises and things that they made and you could make that. But God's not condemning that here. God is condemning the method and the way in which they give it. Not procedurally, but motivationally. Their heart has to be right. The motive has to be pure. The reason that they do what they do. And God is tired and exhausted with mediocre Christianity here. Again, Psalm 51 and verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A contrite heart. A broken, a broken and a contrite heart thou wilt not despise, O God. So what are we talking about here? What makes a sacrifice acceptable? So we've seen the unacceptable sacrifice. What is the sacrifice that can be accepted? Well, the sacrifice of God is not the animal on the altar. Even then, it is the broken spirit. It is a broken and a contrite heart. What does that mean? The word contrite means literally to be worn or bruised. In other words, the weight of the burden of my sin has emotionally and spiritually exhausted me. 
It's worn me down. I, I can't tell you how many people have life-changing experiences when they come to God. Either trusting Him as their Savior or returning to Him if they've back backslidden and been away from Him. Because God has allowed the weight of their sin to crush them. Sometimes we get in the way of God working by bailing people out that are in sin. We think we're doing them a favor. We think we're helping them. We think we're displaying compassion. But what we're really doing is just getting in God's way. When someone forsakes God, when someone forsakes righteousness and truth and they go in their sin, the best thing that you can do for them, the most compassionate thing for you that you can do for them is to allow them to learn that they cannot bear the weight of their sin on their own. And helping them bear it doesn't help. It only prolongs the inevitable. And it defeats and destroys you in the process. To, to contrite means to be worn or bruised. Bruises hurt. Especially when they're fresh and deep. But it is to be bruised by our sin. It means to be deeply affected with grief and sorrow for having offended God. Now... I will not be sorrowful for offending someone that I don't love deeply. The, to, the, to the depth of my love for someone directly impacts how hurting them hurts me. If, if I hurt a stranger, it might bother me a little bit, but it's not gonna trouble me like deeply hurting my wife would, tr would trouble me. Or deeply hurting someone that I have many years invested in would trouble me. Y'all understand my point this morning. To be truly contrite is directly proportionate to the love that I have. In other words, if I do not love God, I cannot be brokenhearted and sorry over my sin for having offended him. So when I can embrace my sin and be unaffected by it, what I'm really expressing and what the genuine problem is, is that God, I just don't love you that much. The message that I'm portraying to him is God, I don't love you enough to be hurt by the fact that I hurt you. You don't think that that's true? Stop and consider your, your personal relationships this morning. If, if you are not deeply hurt when you deeply hurt your spouse, then you've got some serious relationship problems. If you're not deeply hurt, when you deeply hurt uh, your child or they deeply hurt you and they're not affected by it, there's some serious relationship issues there. There's a love problem there. What God wants from you is for you to accept his great love and for you to reciprocate that love. We love him because he first loved us. He pours into us. He wants us to pour back into him. It should be reciprocal. It should be something that we respond to naturally. And I cannot have a contrite spirit, a broken heart over my sin if I don't love God. Well, pastor, I have the sin in my life. It's really just not that big of a deal. It's only not a big deal, not because of the level of the sin, but because of your view of God and his holiness. God's heart is broken over the most minute sin because it is a rejection of him. 
we've been culturalized to believe that, you know, this little sin's really not that big of a deal, uh, and it's not that big of a deal to me, so it's not that big of a deal to God. No, that little insignificant sin to you, Jesus bore that on the cross. It cost him the piercing of the thorns in his brow and the beating of his face and the cat of nine tails on his back and the spikes through his hands and his feet. That little white lie, that little rejection of authority, that little uh, rejection of, uh, of, of someone of doing what God has led us to do, that, that bitterness, that anger, that, that lashing out whenever we don't uh, get our way, all of those things are reflecting that we have no genuine love or little genuine love for God. Therein lies the problem. I, I'm not, it's not a big deal to me, God, because you're not a big deal to me. And to the level that I love God, I will be affected by my sin. And until I love God enough to genuinely be brokenhearted over my sin, I cannot express contrition. And until I can be contrite, I cannot offer an acceptable sacrifice. Now when we look and we understand here, I'm just going to make some observations about contrition this morning. Uh, by way of the message that lay out for us. And I, I think that you see this beautifully illustrated in, uh, in Psalm 51 and what David has gone through and what he's born. Uh, and so we're going to look at a few verses there. We're not going to really jump around too much more at this point. And I'm mindful of the time. But I want to give you some things to think about this morning as you think about is my worship, is my song, is my gift, is my service acceptable to God? Am I just going through the motions of the Christian life or am I engaged in worshiping and honoring God with how I live and what I offer and what I do for Him? Number one this morning, contrition, I would say contrition requires humility. Contrition requires humility. Now, what I mean by that is this. David, David says, have mercy upon me, O God, in Psalm 51, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. What's he done? David has come now, at first he was defiant, and now he is broken and humble before God. And I'm saying this morning that contrition requires humility. I want you to notice where David is. He is in the presence of God. Now, the Bible says that we can come boldly before the throne of God. Praise God for that. But when I begin to think that I have a right or that I deserve to come boldly before God, I have a pride problem. I have a humility issue. What I'm saying here is there's a difference between coming in like a banny rooster with my chest stuck out into the presence of God and saying, okay, God, you think this is a big deal? Why is it a big deal? I have a right to be here. You said I could be. Kind of like a rebellious child coming to their, to their parents. And what we look at here is he's saying, listen, the reality is, is that contrition will make me keenly aware, first of all, that I'm unworthy to stand before God. It doesn't matter that God said you can come before me I'm still unworthy to be there. Just because God granted me access doesn't make me worthy. You know, there are a lot of times where uh, the grace or the mercy of someone allows someone that doesn't necessarily have the right to be there to come into their presence. I remember walking into the Oval Office and having a picture made uh, when I was in the military. And, and I was honored to be there, but I didn't have a right to be there. I was invited there. 
God invites you into his presence, but you are not worthy to stand there. I'm not either. Isaiah, a great prophet, comes into the presence of God and falls immediately on his face, seemingly for the first time keenly aware of his lack of worthiness to be in God's presence. Humbled by the idea that he is in the presence of God. Contrition requires humility. And we have to understand that we are unworthy to stand before God. We've kind of got the idea that we deserve to be in God's presence. And that's a dangerous place for a Christian to be. Well, but pastor, God said you can come boldly before the throne of grace. I know, but that doesn't make me worthy. I can because I'm a son. I can because I have Christ. And I can because I stand in the righteousness of Christ. But I am unworthy to be there. It is his grace and mercy that grants me access. That should not puff me up with pride. That should bring me to my knees in humility. And when I realize that I'm unworthy to stand before God, then that comes to me to help understand that secondly, I'm also unworthy of his forgiveness. Now praise God, he forgives us of our sin. Praise God that Jesus loves us enough to come to Calvary's cross and to bear that burden so that forgiveness could be offered and extended. But that does not make us worthy of forgiveness. And we are very, uh, most Christians are very uh, in, in tune with the idea that if I just come in and say, God, I'm sorry that we're forgiven. As if we're entitled to God's forgiveness. We are blessed and graced with God's forgiveness. We are not entitled to it. But Pastor God said he would grant it. That doesn't mean I deserve it. And when we come to Christ in salvation, we have the realization of, you know, this is more than I deserve. And sometimes we'll even, a lot of people will go around and agree, how are you doing today? Well, I'm better than I deserve. And it's kind of become kind of a cliche thing and it's not wrong to say. I'm not against saying it. It's a good thing to remind ourselves of. But the practical reality is, is that most of us live in the idea that, hey, when I sin, all I've got to do is just go into God and say, God, I'm sorry and I'm forgiven. That doesn't mean that I deserve it. And just because he grants it doesn't make me worthy. And when I have to come before my father and say, Father, I've sinned against you. Would you forgive me? I shouldn't come with a nonchalant, flippant attitude demanding his forgiveness by my presence. I should come humbled by the fact that he would still grant it when I failed him so many times. I can't, I can't do that unless I love him deeply. Contrition means that I'm unworthy to stand before God. That humility means that I realize that I'm unworthy of his forgiveness. And it means that I realize that I'm hopeless and helpless without his presence. Without the presence of God in my life, I am hopeless. Without the presence of God in my life, I am helpless. I cannot stand, I cannot function, I cannot be what God would have me to be and do unless God's presence is in my life. And when I come to the place in my life that I realize my great need for God, then I have come to a place of humility. We spend far too much time and energy doing things in the power and the energy of our flesh rather than the power and the energy of the Spirit of God. And we fail in the flesh. And it looks good on the outside. But internally, it's unacceptable to God. Contrition requires humility. The second thing that I would say this morning is that contrition requires a heartfelt sorrow. 
It requires heartfelt sorrow. It is grief, first of all, from separation. Because ultimately, when I sin against God, it hinders my relationship with Him. It doesn't change my status as His son or daughter. It affects our fellowship with one another. And there's separation. In February of 1989, or excuse me, of 1988, <coughs> I loaded up and I left out for the military. At that point in time, my wife and I had been dating for a few years, three years almost, and we were engaged. When I left, I knew that after I finished basic training, that I would get a couple of weeks of leave and I would be able to come back to the area where she was at and we would be able to see each other on a limited basis for a couple of days uh, because she was still in college and they had very strict rules about non-students being on campus. Especially they had had um, some problems with uh, people stealing things from cars and getting on campus during the time that I was away uh, that caused them to really get strict about some of the rules that had in the past been lax. So uh, May, I graduate, I go back to Chicago and I uh, go and drive over and see her. It's limited to two or three hours. We see each other for about two or three days that way. And then I load up and I go to my next school uh, and she finishes the semester and goes back to Puerto Rico. I didn't see her again until November. When you're young and when you're in love and when you're engaged, that's a really long time. And people, uh, young people today think it's a really long time now. But now they have the benefit of a cell phone or a tablet where they can at least look at each other and make eyes at each other through the phone. We didn't have that kind of technology back in those days. And Pastor, you're old. Yeah, tell me about it. I know. I mean, what I had was a phone booth. What I had was a phone booth and about three rolls of quarters. And it cost about 20 bucks an hour to have a conversation. And when we separated for long periods of time, there were tears shed by both of us. And there were a lot of letters written. Now, you look around the auditorium this morning, we got some young ladies on the back row over here and some of our young people over here on the, near the back over here that don't even know what a letter is. <laughs> They've never had to write one. They, they can send a text or a, a, an email, but they don't know what a letter is. A stamp, what's a stamp? What I'm saying is, when we were going to be separated, it was painful. Why? Because we loved each other. Isn't it amazing how, as a child of God, I can sin against Him, and it doesn't even bother me that it creates separation? I don't even really notice that He's even gone. The idea of Him being around is enough. Just the thought that He's lurking around out there, that he can bail me out. I got, my, my daughter went back to college a couple weeks ago. I always tease her. She'll be mad at me for saying this. But, you know, I know when I'm going to hear from you. When the bills do. <laughs> mom gets calls. Mom gets texts. Mom gets FaceTime. Dad gets, Dad, my bill's due on Monday. Here's how much it is. I got that text on yesterday. First time I heard from her in about two weeks. And so I'll give her a hard time. And she'll get upset with me for teasing her about it. Uh, but the reality is, is that the idea of someone that has the ability to meet our needs for most of us is enough. 
but it's not enough. And when I come to a place where I realize that contrition requires heartfelt sorrow, my idea, the idea of being separated from God because of my sin should strike me with grief. The one that I love is gone. The one that I love I can't communicate with. The one that I love my communication is limited. The one that I love I'm not going to see. I can't spend time with. I can't pour my heart out to them. I can't uh, enjoy their, uh, my time with them. It is a grief of separation. And contrition means that I grieve over the fact that my sin has separated me from God. And to get rid of that sin and to forsake it is the only thing that is going to bring me back into his presence. Contrition requiring heartfelt sorrow not only gives me a grief of separation, but it's a grief that steals my sleep. Keeps me awake at night. When's the last time, Christian, that your, that your sin kept you awake at night? When's the last time that the realization that sin in your life had separated you from the power and blessing of God kept you awake at night? I don't think that any of us, myself especially, could make the claim that my life is so free of sin that I, I don't have any sin that would keep me awake. Our sin may not all be the same. It may not all manifest itself in the same way. But the realization, when it dawns on me, hey, you haven't heard from God for a while. You haven't felt God's presence for a while. Does that keep me awake? Does it drive me to my knees? Does it cause me to come to terms with the fact that there's something separating me from God that's stealing my sleep. Many times you find David in the Psalms laying awake at night meditating on the word of God or troubled by the attacks of an enemy uh, or the betrayal of, a, of what he thought was a loved one or a friend. And he was betrayed by those closest to him, by his children, by his counselors, by his close family members. Many times David betrayed. Brokenhearted. Stealing his sleep. It is a grief that weighs me down. It is a grief that just crushes my spirit. It is a grief that's devastating. When's the last time that my sin devastated me, that the weight of it crushed me? A broken heart, a contrite heart, literally worn or bruised. Contrition requires heartfelt sorrow. If I am not genuinely sorry that I hurt the one that I love, my God, then I'm not contrite. Number three, contrition requires honesty. Psalm 51 again. David says, wash me throughly from mine iniquity. From mine iniquity. From mine iniquity. From my iniquity. Listen, I can't tell you how many times I have to confront someone about maybe something in their life. Well, yeah, pastor, but it's because of this. A student at school. Well, I cheated on the test because. Well, I was disrespectful to my parent because of what they did to me. They disrespected me, so I disrespected them. We justify. We blame shift. We don't take responsibility for our sin. We have been culturally trained and programmed that if I've got an excuse or if what I did was because of something that someone did to me, 
that that makes it acceptable, that it's okay. When we stand before God, we stand without excuse and we stand without the ability to blame anyone else. Pastor, but you don't know what they did to me. Listen, I realized this morning that I try to clean up on Sundays. I try to look professional on Sundays. I try to present a, 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 an image to you that, hey, this is uh, our, our spiritual leader that we can follow. And that tends to make people think pastor's life has been all easy. I, I, if you want to sit down and compare notes about how you've been wronged and you've been mistreated and how you've been betrayed, let's sit down and compare notes. And I'm not complaining this morning. I'm just saying that just because your life has been hard doesn't mean that no one else's has been. Just because you've been betrayed doesn't mean that no one else has been betrayed. Just because someone, and, and no matter of saying, well, pastor, you say that, but you've never been through any trouble. You've never been betrayed. You've never been mistreated. You've never been abandoned. You've never been this. You've never been that. Try me. You might be surprised. But you know what? Even if I was legitimately wronged, it does not justify my wrong response. Whoever has wronged you will give an account to God. You will not give an account to God for them. You will give an account to God for you. And when I blame shift to justify so that I don't feel guilty about my sin, I am being dishonest with God and I'm being dishonest with myself. And I cannot make any progress in my spiritual life. Christian or contrition requires honesty. Notice David again, wash me, not wash my enemies, truly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and clear when thou judgest. Notice verse 6. Behold thou desirest truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me in verse 10 a clean heart O God and renew a right spirit within me. Isn't it interesting that David who was betrayed by so many isn't saying Forgive them. Cleanse them. It's cleanse me. And until I come to the place where I'm honest with myself and evaluating my sin, I can never be honest enough with my sin to find forgiveness and to, and to find deliverance from that sin in my life. What does that require, Pastor? It means being honest. God, I've sinned. I've sinned. The second thing I would say here is that means that I'm saying, God, it's my fault. But pastor, th that person did this to me and it provoked this response. It's still your fault for responding incorrectly. It's my responsibility. I am my own responsibility. No one else gives an answer to me when I stand before God. No one will give an answer for me. I will give an answer for no one else. I'm responsible for me. Honesty 
means, God, I've sinned. God, it's my fault. And thirdly, God, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Stating that you're wrong does not eliminate the wrong of someone else. It just accepts responsibility for you're wrong. And until I am contrite enough to be honest enough with God and myself that I've sinned, that I've no one to blame but myself, and that I was wrong in doing so, I have not cleared the pathway for true forgiveness and deliverance from that sin from the, in the eyes of God. Fourthly and lastly this morning, not only does contrition require humility, not only does contrition require heartfelt sorrow, but contrition requires, and contrition requires honesty, but it also brings honor. True contrition brings honor. What are you talking about, Pastor? It, it brings an acceptable sacrifice. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, thou wilt not despise. God is not condemning the procedure. He is condemning the attitude, the spirit. And when the spirit is right, God is pleased. When the spirit is right, God is honored. And an acceptable sacrifice, a contrition spirit, a contrite spirit brings honor. It brings an acceptable sacrifice. It, it brings that sweet smelling savor to God. It causes God to want to bring empowerment and blessing upon us, not judgment and restriction. Secondly, it's, it, it brings God's blessing and power in our lives. When my sacrifice is acceptable, God, listen, God wants to bless you. God wants to empower us. God wants to use our lives in a great way. But until we come to the place where we are walking with him, where we're expressing genuine love to him, where we're crushed when we crush him. It really cannot be more beautifully illustrated than the, than the attitude in the heart of a small child to their parent. When a small child believes, I mean, you can take just even a toddler that can't speak yet and a parent can act like they're offended and just pretend to cry and immediately the child's complete countenance changes and they get brokenhearted and the lip starts quivering and it's not fake for them, it's genuine and real. I have hurt and offended my mom or dad or this, uh, this adult that I love and they don't even know what they're doing yet. It's just a natural expression. I broke you, that breaks me. And the attitude and the spirit of a Christian to say, God, I broke your heart, that breaks my heart. Changes the attitude about how we view life and how we view sin and how we approach him and how we, uh, how we view him. It is an acceptable sacrifice. It brings God's blessing and power and it causes my life to be a difference-making life. You want your life to make a difference in the life of someone else? Learn to have a contrite spirit toward God. A contrite heart will be a holy life. A contrite spirit will be a blessed and empowered life. A contrite spirit will be a spirit that God uses to change the lives of people around them. I can hang on to my sin. I can be stubborn in it. I can justify it until the stars fall. But the reality is, is that all I'm saying, whenever I hang on to my sin, when I hang on to my anger, when I hang on to my pride, when I hang on to my bitterness, is God, I just simply don't love you like you love me. And I'll go through the motions. 
I'll show up to church. I'll put in my offering. I'll pass out a tract. I might even walk down to the altar and say a prayer once in a while. But there's some things in my life that are off limits to you, God. And it really doesn't even bother me anymore because my conscience is seared and I've got it all justified in my heart. And again, the real message is, God, I just don't love you that much. And God says, you can do all the right things, but until your spirit is broken and contrite, it is nothing more than a vain oblation to me. It's unacceptable. I don't know about you, but I don't want to live my life offering a sacrifice to God that he can't accept. When God speaks to me, I want to love him enough to respond in the way that he's told me to respond so that my response to him says, God, I love you like you love me. And my father says, I'm not bringing judgment. I'm bringing forgiveness and restoration. And that sacrifice, it's a sweet smelling savor. When God pulls up into the driveway of your life and the windows are open on that beautiful fall day and the smell pours out of the kitchen, is he smelling something that's burnt and wasted? Or is he smelling something that makes him want to come on in and pull up a chair? Make sure God's welcome in your heart and your life. He loves you, and he wants you to love him.